Welcome. Welcome to the Fast God Stuff Podcast, where we make biblical theology simple, practical, and fun so that we can love God and others more. I'm Conrad, and my favorite chord is E minor. So pretty. And I'm Jesse, and my favorite chord is C major 5 diminished. We're just two guys trying to follow Jesus, hanging in the studio with our Bibles and We take just 30 minutes to chat about a theological topic and renew our minds with the good things of Christ. Today we're asking the question, what's the deal with Satan? Two, three, four, what's the deal with Satan? Voices are awful. (laughs) (laughs) So we're discussing Satan today because we find that people, both believers and non-believers, tend to either overemphasize or underemphasize Satan. Right. So today we'd like to find a biblical view of Satan so that we can know what to expect and how to respond to this knowledge. So today we're asking the questions, what is Satan? Satan dealing with Satan. <laughs> <laughs> Don't forget to tip your waiters and waitresses. We're here all podcast. Oh, man. Let's start with what is Satan? Okay, so Satan ultimately is an angel. So now we have to ask the question, well, what is an angel? Good question. So angels are created spiritual beings that were created to serve God. Right. And there's a lot of confusion about angels and the spiritual realm. And it comes from that the idea that both God and angels are spirit. So therefore, they should share a lot of stuff in common. But the only thing that we mean by spirit is that spirit is invisible to us and we can't physically interact with it. Right. So the spiritual commonality between God and angels and heaven and stuff ends there because only God is uncreated and exists beyond space-time and has no boundaries. The rest of the created universe, both the physical parts we can see and anything else we can't see, such as the heavenly realm, heaven and angels and stuff like that, they all have space-time boundaries, which means things created beings like angels actually have a body. Right. So in a lot of ways, we are very similar to angels. We were both created by God to serve some type of function. We were both given intelligence and a sense of morality. And we both have bodies limited in time and space. So in a sense, these things are physical, but not our type of physical. Angel physics. Right. And it sounds odd to say that, but that's because we're so used to categorizing angels to be more like God than created creatures. But now the major difference is God did not create us with the sense perception to see and physically interact with them, but they can see and physically interact with us, which means that they are in the same universe as us. They are occupying the same time and space. So it's kind of like a one-way mirror where you have two rooms and both sets of people in the rooms are both real, but one side of people can't see the other side of the people because of the mirror. Right. But every once in a while, God lifts this mirror between the two rooms so that we can see the other side. For example, God opened Elisha's servant's eyes to see the spiritual battle of heavenly chariots and horses. And then during the transfiguration, Peter, James, and John were able to see the heavenly bodies of 
Elijah and Moses. And of course, all the other times that angels allow themselves to be seen when they have to talk to people like Mary and the shepherds. Right. So now that we know that angels have bodies, there are at least three types of angels. There are one, the normal angels, and they probably don't have wings. Two, the cherubim, which have four wings. And then the seraphim, which have six wings. So now the question is, well, what type of angel is Satan? And Satan could be a cherubim if the passage in Ezekiel is actually talking about him. And on top of that, Satan, like all the other angelic creatures, is probably very beautiful. And he's not like that silly caricature that you see in cartoons. With horns and a pitchfork and cloven hooves. Exactly. And that depiction came from the Middle Ages when the church thought they could resist Satan by mocking him and displaying caricatures of him. Right. They're satirizing Satan. But after a bunch of years and a bunch of generations passed, people ended up thinking that these caricatures were actually what Satan looked like. It's like a bad joke that we didn't get. So the next question we can ask is, when did he fall? When did he sin? So the fall of Satan must have happened after the creation of Adam and Eve, because at the end of creation, Genesis 1.31 says, God saw all that he had made and it was very good. So Satan was still good then. So he must have sinned during that small window between mankind's creation and when we see him in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3. Right. And now the big question, why did Satan fall? We don't have a lot of specific information about why Satan rebelled, but we do know that his origin story was definitely fueled by pride. Right. And because angels are moral, free will creatures, angels were able to choose to love their creator or to rebel. So there are a couple major passages in Isaiah and Ezekiel that might be talking about Satan and the fall, but biblical scholars are split on it. So to be conservative, we won't reference those passages. But the passages we're sure of in Revelation 12 and Jude 1 says that the ancient serpent, devil and Satan, deceiver of the whole world, was thrown to earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And Jude says that the angels did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling. So basically, they had a desire for more power and more authority than they were appointed by God. So if you really put me on the spot and told me to give you my best speculation, total guess on why Satan fell, well, I would point to the small window for the fall, and then this verse in Hebrews 1.14 where it says this about angels. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? So in his pride, maybe Satan could have rebelled against this command because he didn't want to be subservient to some brand new creation. And what better way to persuade you to consider my theory than through a short opera called The Fall of Satan. So join us as we enter into heaven. We wonder what orders Gabriel has today. We wonder, we wonder, we wonder, we wonder. Hush! For now he speaks. Hearken unto me, I have orders from God. Now cast your eyes upon God's crowning creation. There call mankind and we are now to serve them. We'll attend to their needs and obey their commands.
It happened exactly like that. <laughs> yeah, that sounds about right. <laughs> <laughs> so we really don't know why he rebelled, and we can only speculate. So here's a few takeaways from all this. Number one, Satan is a created being just like we are. And two, Satan is, a, is limited in time and space just like us. And you and I will probably actually never run into him, but we will probably run into his followers. And then three, his power comes from his power to influence, from political and mil- military might. He has a host of fallen angels at his command that he can influence nations, societies, cultures, individuals, leaders, and he can battle angelic forces. Like it says in Ephesians, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces in the heavenly realms. So here's the 15 second Fast God Stuff Summary. Satan is as real as you and me, but is a limited created being like you and me. He is very powerful due to being the leader of a great political and military power. So we need to figure out how he accomplishes this and then how we can combat against him. Satan is created. Satan is finite. Satan is very bad. So what is part two? (laughs) (laughs) So in act two, we're asking who is Satan? So we should probably say, but start by saying that Satan, the word Satan, the name Satan is actually what's called a transliteration of the Hebrew word. That means we're representing a Hebrew word with English consonants and syllables. And it means literally adversary or opponent. Okay. In fact, in Psalm 109, it has the sense of an accuser or a prosecuting attorney. Okay. And the title Satan is actually used 52 times in the Bible. And sometimes it's used to refer to anybody who is blocking or challenging someone else. This is why Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. It's a general term for blocking. Mm -hmm. So over the centuries between Malachi and, and Jesus, Jewish writers began to use this label as a name for the biggest adversary of them all, the mother Okay. Adversary. And that was the supernatural being who had rebelled against God. So they turned it into a proper noun. Exactly. So we also see sometimes the word devil used as a synonym for Satan. And Mm -hmm. that's appropriate because the word devil itself is used 35 times in the scriptures. And it literally means slanderer or accuser. Mm -hmm. So we're actually starting to see that the names used for Satan actually reveal something about his character. Mm -hmm. So he's called all kinds of things. We've already talked about the fact that he's the adversary. He's also referred to as the serpent. You referred to him earlier as the dragon, Mm -hmm. and that's also from the scriptures. He's also called the ruler or the prince of this world. Mm -hmm. So Satan is called the God of this age. And in the third chapter of Genesis, which we referenced before, the serpent persuades Adam and Eve to eat the forbidden fruit. And that, of course, results in their expulsion from the garden. And although Adam and Eve are punished, Satan actually receives the fiercest curse. Mm -hmm. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field on your belly, you shall go and dust. You shall eat all the days of your life. So this is worse than just getting kicked to the ground Mm -hmm. because what's happening here is the phrase cast to the ground can refer literally to dirt and metaphorically to the underworld. So this curse to eat dirt has both meanings. 
And part of the meaning is metaphorical since dirt isn't part of the natural snake diet. So the point being made by the curse is that the serpent, who wanted to be most high, will be the most low instead, cast away from God to the earth and even under the earth. In the underworld, the serpent is even lower than the beasts of the field. He is totally hidden from view and from life in God's world. His domain is death. Interesting. So he's also referred to as the destroyer, which in Hebrew is this great word, Abaddon, Mm -hmm. which means ruin or destruction. And in Greek, the term Apollyon, which means exterminator or destroyer. Yeah. And this is really important because we need to understand that Satan incites persecution, imprisonment, and the political oppression of believers. And he performs signs and wonders to deceive the nations. And what his goal is, is to silence the church and to thwart all missionary outreach. He's behind all of that stuff. Yeah, and one of the ways Satan accomplishes this is he tempts people in leadership by feeding them lies and feeding into their sinful nature. Right. That's part of the reason why the scriptures also refer to him as the tempter, the accuser, and the deceiver. Mm -hmm. Because what he's really good at is setting a snare or a trap for people with a view of exploiting and intensifying their sinful inclinations Mm -hmm. that they already have. Yeah. And he will often test or try Christians. So the primary mode of Satan's work is temptation and compromise. Yeah. And one of the big things that Satan does is he seeks to incite disunity and division and promotes false doctrine and influences the thoughts and actions of unbelievers. Right. And the way that he tries to influence Christians is he sneaks in worldly and evil philosophies by disguising himself as an angel of light. Exactly. Like in 2 Corinthians 11, it says, and no wonder for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. So, you know, he gets us to justify our own sins, uh, like things like, you know, the ends justifies the means or it won't hurt anyone or I deserve to be happy. And then he he twists what the definition of happy is. And half truth is just as dangerous as a untruth. In Mm -hmm. fact, it's more dangerous because it appears like it's correct. It has some validity to it or some weight. Right. But it's a knockoff. It's not the real McCoy. Right. Like everyone believes that love is good. Well, what is your definition of love? And does your love actually include the love of God? So you'll hear the world say, uh, love is all you need. But what is your definition of love? Because a lot of times love of God is not included in your definition of love. So we can really answer who is Satan with three statements about him and his character. First, Satan is a dragon. Mm -hmm. So Satan is supernatural and he is definitely stronger than any mere human, but he is a monster in terrible ways. This is why we do need to take him seriously. In Revelation 12, 9, he's called the great dragon, the ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the world. So the point of this whole image is that we're getting a picture of Satan as this dragon who in the book of Revelation crouches at Bethlehem to devour the son of God. And failing that, the dragon became furious and went off to make war on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. So this is the monster who sweeps down a third of the stars, who wants to eat the son of God and failing that wants to eat us. And as if that wasn't bad enough, we are told that he is marauding through the world for those who bear the testimony of Jesus. Yeah. So the bottom line is Satan really shouldn't be messed with. Even the archangel Michael, when he's disputing with the devil about the body of Moses in the book of Jude, Mm -hmm. did not dare to bring a slanderous accusation against Satan, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Right. So Satan is a dragon. The second statement is that Satan is a global terrorist. Yeah. So 1 John 5.19 tells us, 
that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. That's incredible. Yeah. So the whole world lies under or in the evil one. So Satan was not bluffing when he said to Jesus, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me and I can give it to anyone I want to. Right. So Satan is legitimately behind the tragedy of abortion. He's behind the destruction of families and relationships. He's behind all the intractable racial ethnic hatreds in the world. Satan is behind the industrial and political structures of corruption that marginalize the poor and oppress the weak. He's behind the horrors of terrorism, war, and violence. Right, because he is feeding all these cultures, all the nations, all the individuals, all the people in political authority and individuals. He's feeding them lies, and he is actually referenced to as the father of lies. And that's how all this stuff is able to come about is because everyone is buying into his lies. Exactly. And so the last statement that gives us some inclination about who Satan is, is Satan is a fool. Definitely. So here's the thing. He brought Jesus to the cross through Judas, thinking this would mean victory over God. Right. And at the cross, Satan was completely disarmed and his only weapon that he wielded against God's people was taken away from him. Exactly. Satan desires for all people to be condemned before God. And really the only thing that will condemn us is unforgiven sin. That is the one thing that Satan can use to destroy a person forever. The accusation that they have sin that is unforgiven. But in Christ, there is no unforgiven sin. Those who are in Christ through faith in Jesus have their sins, all of them, forgiven. And so Satan's accusations against Christians come to absolutely nothing. Right. That's why Paul says in Romans 8.33, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. So the best that Satan can do is cause us to be ineffective. Right. Because he's already lost the battle. And so it's basically kind of, well, I lost, so I'm going to mess up as much as I can in the meantime before I'm cast into hell. And I'm going to try to cause these Christians who I can't defeat, well, I can at least cause them to be ineffective in this life. Here's the 15-second Fast God Stuff summary. Our adversary, the devil, may operate within the limits God has set, but that does not mean that his threat is not real, nor does it mean that there is no true battle going on between the forces of light and darkness. However, because God is sovereign, even over Satan, we can be assured that our enemy will not win in the end and that we will have nothing to fear if we are on the Lord's side. Satan is a dragon, Satan is a terrorist, Satan is defeated. So what's the third part <laughs> of our study about Satan? <laughs> okay, so part three. Part one was, what is Satan? Part two was, who is Satan? And then part three is combating Satan. So now that we know that Satan is our enemy, we also have to figure out who else is our enemy. And in Ephesians uh, 2, it says there are three enemies of the believer of the world. They are the world, Satan, and flesh. So Satan is and his followers are just one influence. And in many cases, we manage to sin without external temptation because we sell, succumb to the influence of our sinful nature, just like it says in Romans 7. So temptation doesn't have to be a demon directly hanging over your shoulder, whispering temptations into your, into your ear. The temptation could just be indirectly listening to false philosophies that they've tricked the world into believing and spreading through culture and media. So Satan's ultimate weapon is the lie. All you had to do is turn on the TV for five minutes and you'll hear these lies. These lies are so subtle that all you had to do is watch any romantic comedy and you'll run into one of the biggest lies of all, 
they teach romance will make you truly happy. And the truth is only Christ can bring true everlasting happiness. So romance is a blessing from God and not a replacement for God. And what makes that very clever is the fact that it is in some ways a half truth. It's taking something that's good, which is love is in perverting yep. it in such a way yep. that it causes the untruth to be very dangerous. It becomes mm-hmm. its own idol. And then instead of actually filling you with the love of God, you're being disappointed with the love of somebody else that will ultimately always fail. Right. And the second big lie I see the world encouraging is the lie to follow your heart. And this is so bad in so many ways, because this really just means you don't need God to know right and wrong. You can be your own God and make your own morality follow your heart. And on one hand, it assumes that people are generally good. But on the other hand, goodness is whatever you want to be. So goodness loses all meaning and it just becomes an excuse to do whatever makes you happy, regardless on its effect on others. Like this is so pervasive. Like right now, Disney has this show on ice called Follow Your Heart. Oh, <laughs> so that's, that's so what, awful. And that's what we teach our children. Yeah. And that's one of the things we need to learn and teach to others is really how to guard, strengthen and renew our minds. Because the battle for sin waged by Satan always starts in the mind. Mm-hmm. So don't believe everything you think. Mm-hmm. We naturally feel that if we think something, it must be true because it comes from within us. Mm-hmm. But just because you think something does not mean that it's true. Right. And because Satan's lies are all over media, the battle for your kids' hearts and minds start from the day that they're born. Yeah. Even the fairy stories say, believe in your heart, do mm-hmm. what you want, go with the direction that makes you happy. Right. And for adults, it's not cartoons that's telling us lies. It's basically the news, specifically political news. Right. We're bombarded with messages saying that politics is what's important. Political candidates, political systems will save people, will make people better, will make people moral. Right. And buying into politics is just like the other lie of following your heart. But instead of replacing God with your heart, you're now replacing God's eternal answers with temporary political answers. Right. Okay, so how can we identify when we are falling for one of Satan's lies? So we are falling for one of Satan's lies whenever we get bummed out or we get stressed out or anxious about anything, uh, which is pretty much all of us all the time, because we are called to be anxious in nothing and in everything give thanks and count it all joy, because God uses trials to refine us. Right. So let's go to 1 Peter 5, 7, where it's a passage that tells us how to deal with Satan. It starts off with, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. So he cares for you is the truth. Satan's lie is, does God actually care about the stuff that happens to you? Does God actually care that that guy cut you off in traffic or that uh, you have this unforeseen expense and this repair? No, God is uncaring in this situation, so therefore be anxious. It goes on to say, be alert and of sober mind or else you'll miss opportunities to go to the fruit of spirit. Like, seriously, like, even when you just hit a red light, there's an opportunity to grow the fruit of the Spirit. Right. The next part says, your enemy, the devil, prowls like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. So he's trying to devour your faith. He's trying to cause you to be ineffective. He's trying to make you so focused on yourself that you are not focused on your purpose, which is loving God and loving others. And then it goes to say, resist him. Well, resist him how? It says, stand firm in the faith. This means stand firm in God's promises. Right. When Satan says, did God really say blank? You reply with a verse, which is exactly how Christ responded when he was tempted. So remember, Satan's weapon is the lie and our weapon is the word of God. So your faith is as strong as how quickly you can recite a verse in your head and then put faith into that verse with your heart. 
James 4 says something similar. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. And listen to Ephesians 6.11. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Therefore take up what? The shield of faith, which is what First Peter was talking about, with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Remember, Satan's weapon is the lie and our weapon is the word of God, the Bible. Right. Okay, so let's get into some application. How do we actually do this in real life? One of the ways we can do it is by guarding our minds from garbage. Right. And it's not just stuff that's inherently bad or overtly bad. There's so much you can fill your mind with that really is just stuffing. It's neither good nor bad. Mm-hmm. As 1 Corinthians 6.12 says, lawful but not helpful. In other words, some things aren't necessarily wrong, but they aren't necessary either. Yeah, because I find myself wasting a lot of my time following Star Wars rumors or sports. Right. So there are two ways to guard our minds. And we get this instruction from Philippians chapter four. And those two ways are conversational prayer and concentrated focusing. Here's what Paul says. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, If there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Right. So the first way you can guard your heart and mind is in everything to pray. Don't worry about anything, but pray about everything. This kind of prayer is like a running conversation, which means that we're not necessarily on our knees and we don't close our eyes. And therefore you should be constantly speaking with him so that you are being, you are filtering everything that you're receiving in your life in real time. The second way you guard your heart, according to Paul is to fix your thoughts. Think about these things. So how do we do that? It's by concentrated focusing. So this is one of the keys to overcoming temptation. Don't merely resist it, replace it. Whatever you merely resist persists. So the more you hit a nail, the harder you drive it into the wood. So when we're being tempted, it's not just enough to try to expel those thoughts from our mind, but to replace them with God's promises from his word. Mm -hmm. And that means even grabbing verses, memorizing the scripture, so that you can pull it up and recall right in the moment of temptation and resist the devil. Right. And my applications are, my first one is, is to identify your most common sins. Like, are you anxious over finances or are you always annoyed at other people, especially other people on the road? Or are you lonely? The next step is then to find a verse that addresses that sin. And if you don't know where to start, the two verses that I always go to that are almost universal verses are, Romans 8, 28 to 29, that's the verse that says, all things work together for the good of them that love God. And then also James 1, 2 through 4, which is that verse that says, count it all joy when you face trials of many kinds. Then the third thing is, after you have that verse in your head, then you turn that sin into growth by figuring out which fruit of the Spirit God is growing in you in that situation. So if someone cuts you off, well, maybe God is working patience or self-control or love or joy in you. Just pick one of them. If your boss is doing something really dumb, well, then maybe it's patience, self-control, or love. The important part is just to pick one of them that you can identify so that you can actually focus on it. So here's the 15-second Fast God Stuff summary. Satan's weapon is the lie. Our weapon is the Word of God. So develop a love for God's Word. Read it, study it, and memorize it. Only then can we truly resist the devil 
by standing firm in our faith so that whenever we are tempted, we can fight back with the greatest weapon God has given us, which is his word. All right, so let's bring everything home. Okay, so the problem is we seem to over or underemphasize Satan. Either way, he gains ground because it causes us to be ineffective. We might underestimate him when we know his limits as a created and defeated being, but then casually accept his lies that are promoted in entertainment and culture. We might overestimate him when we attribute to him more power and influence than he has and focus on what he might be doing rather than what God has commanded us to do. So we battle Satan through faith in the promises of God. And our anxiousness exposes our lack of faith in these promises, but it also gives us a chance to identify our sin. So find and memorize verses that can help you battle the sins that you are struggling with. And then when we do that, we can be more effective in carrying out our purpose, which is to love God and others more. That's all the time we have for today. Tell a friend about this episode and subscribe to the Fast God Stuff podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you like to podcast. Fast God Stuff is a proud member of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. And please check out fastgodstuff.com for all kinds of content that will help you become a master rapper. (laughs) Until next time, love God. Love others. That's That's it. it.